you, Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. What an excellent show we have packed for you. It's Easter, do see. Actor Eddie Marsden fills us in on his ITV drama, The Thief, His Wife and the Canoe. Comedian and legend Catherine Tate talks about her brand new Netflix prison comedy, Hard Sell. Impressionist Alice McGowan tells us all about taking up the keys for the piano tour and accompanying record, The Piano Album, Volume 2. Comedian Nish Kumar gives us the lowdown on his tour dates for his new show, Your Power, Your Control, and show chef Martha Collison makes some Easter treats. That's all to come, but first, let's catch up with Maria and solve some more of your Graham's Guide dilemmas. I hit I hit the lovely word Maria and up came error. <laughs> Is it a sign? <laughs> I, I, that's, that's what I'm hitting this morning and I'm getting error too. Graham, I was so giddy with excitement because it was the hottest day yesterday and, you know, suddenly everybody's happy, 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 happy. And then I had three, count them, one, two, three, white Russians um, cocktails. Ooh. And now this morning, Ooh. I mean, that in the olden days, that would have been an appetizer for, you know, another <laughs> 10 pints. But now I feel like I've been hit over the head with a hammer. So I apologize for any errors I may be causing later. <laughs> um, well, now, the, white, white Russians are dangerous. Like, they don't taste alcoholic at all. They're like milkshakes because it's vodka and Kahlua and some other magic ingredients. And yes, they go down too easily. Yes, the drunkest I've ever seen my mother was when I took her out for uh, a Sunday lunch and I ordered a white Russian and she went, what's that? And because it was about half 12, I didn't want to tell her, well, it's a very alcoholic drink. <laughs> Did you say so, it's a milkshake? So I said, oh, it's a nice milky drink or something like that. And uh, yes, she started drinking them. <laughs> and uh, yes, it didn't end well. Uh, so, but yeah, I they want are to know dip, how it did are. end. We want to know what happened to Rhoda. I seem to remember we ended up on a boat uh, on the t- on the Thames, <laughs> <laughs> heading in the opposite direction from my house. That that's uh, I, I, that's what I think happened. So, is it a heat wave? Is it is it officially a heat wave now, Maria? Well, I don't think it's going to be as hot today, oddly. Um, but it. But you're is still in a bikini. Be... <laughs> I am still in a bikini, and of course, I haven't been swimming for about a month because illness and you know decrepitude and uh, rough seas. And, you know, it's a bit like probably people having babies, isn't it? You have a baby and you think, oh, that's painful. I'm never doing that again. And then you forget the pain. When I went in to see yesterday, I did think I was going to die. I don't know if you've been watching the Feel the Fear, which is Wim Hof method. He's the one who gets your breathing going so that you can control your mind and control the pain and control your, you know, your cold responses, basically. And... um Yes, it's very good, and lots of celebrities are jumping into ice holes and that sort of thing. So it's become it's, very mm. mainstream, Graham. I must say, I don't understand that Wim Hof thing. I mean, I get that you can control things, da, 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 or you could just not jump in an ice hole, and then everyone's <laughs> better off. <laughs> no, but people are finding their pain in the ice hole. They are ridding themselves of, you know, baggage they're carrying. It's all very hippy-tippy. But, you know, it does seem to make people feel better. And they all came out of the ice hole um, a little bit kind of high and giddy and crazy. And like, uh, lovely Holly Willoughby and also Lee Mack are the presenters. Well remembered. Very good. I thought I yes. saw you walking down a, a road there and there was yeah. no Lee Mack. So well a, found. A cul-de-sac. <laughs> and no, but... He, Tamsin Althwaite was very concerned because, sadly, her mother 
um, died very suddenly of a heart attack. And she was that was her main fear that she was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> she said, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And he said, and did you? <laughs> she didn't, also, obviously. That's not, that's not an irrational fear. If your mother died of a heart attack, don't jump in an ice hole. That's yes. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. How was your? Is, I didn't. I didn't talk to you about your birthday because we know you're fifty nine now, and yes. that's a year away from sixty. <laughs> and um, how was it? What did you do? Did you cry all day? No, I didn't cry. Uh, but I put out my candles with a fire extinguisher. That's um, that's that's how many I have now. It's all. You didn't have any candles, did you? You no, didn't. I didn't have that. any cake. You can't have cake at fifty nine. No. Um, I'm going to uh, uh, stop talking about my birthday. I'm going to ask you to collect some letters so that we can get on with Graham's guide. Virgin Radio. Guide. I've got a problem here, and I'm going to read it out loud to you for your advice. Dear Graham and Maria, I broke up with my ex last year, but he's really good friends with a couple of my housemates. I never want him to. No, I never want to stop him from <laughs> hanging out with them. <laughs> I never want to stop him from hanging out with them. But since we broke up, he's now meeting them here and insisting on coming into my flat far more frequently than he used to, with no warning from my housemates. I don't know whether it's a coincidence or whether he's doing it on purpose. But I do feel like it's an invasion of space. I've spoken to one of my housemates about it and they said, it's always my ex suggesting that we meet here and nothing's really changed. He doesn't want us to get back to, he doesn't want to get back together with me. I don't want to get back together with him. It now just feels like he's getting in my way and I don't know how to deal with it. I don't want, I don't want to have to hide in my own flat. What should I do? And that is from Liv in London. Live in London, I think there is some unfinished business here that I'm hearing because, you know, you're a grown-up, he's a grown-up, you should be able to say to him, I mean, clearly you don't really want to involve your housemates in this and your mates with, your friends with your housemates and you don't want that to be compromised, but he's, you can say to him, look, um, we're finished now and this is my space this is my safe space this is my home they are my friends and if you're here all the time they're just making me feel very uncomfortable and could you if you are going to come here let me know so I can maybe be out because at the moment we're in that interim period a sort of limbo of not yet friends but no longer together I'm sure this will change and life does change and maybe you'll start inviting somebody else back and then he'll feel embarrassed. But you have to step up to this one, Liv, and say, can you let me know when you're coming around and maybe can you limit it? I know that you're friends with my housemates, but there are other places to meet and I feel that it's invading a space of mine. What do you think, Graham? Well, it's one of those things, isn't it? it this, you know... Ultimately, what will fix this problem is time and uh, and lives moving on. Yeah. Because, you know, this is such a kind of... I can imagine for Live in London, this is her whole world right now. This is her, this is her home, her housemates, flatmates. This is her ex. It's very kind of overwhelming. But actually, if you step away for a second, Liv, and realise, oh, if I lived somewhere else... <laughs> This wouldn't be happening. Or if I, you know, I just in, in about 
in another year, you look back on this and think, oh, do you remember that time when that stupid ex used to come around the flat all the time? You know, this will pass. But for it's now... It's making it very I... difficult to move on, though, for her, isn't it? Yes. If he's constantly there. And I think he should have, if you have a word with him and you're grown up, he should have enough empathy and good manners to respect your space and your need for your space. Because if the position was reversed, I'm sure he wouldn't like it. Well, it's also kind of posturing, isn't it? It's kind of him saying, look how little I care. Look how little I care. I'm I'm here with you all the time. I feel nothing. Whereas, in fact, what he's really saying is, I can't stop thinking about you and I want to, I want to needle you. I want to bother you. So there's something, I agree with you, there's something unfinished and it's in him. It's in his head because he's the one doing this. He's the one making this happen. And he is slightly clearly... messing with her, isn't he? But yes. I, it's a shame that Live in London didn't tell us the circumstances of the breakup. You know, who finished oh, with yes. who. I'm... Uh, you know, I'm guessing it was Liv that finished with him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be needing to needle her. And if he'd finished with her, then he, he surely wouldn't be so cruel as to then keep appearing. Once you finish with somebody, you finish with them, right? And you don't need to keep going to their house, albeit uh, under the guise of meeting with his mates, your flatmates. I wish life was that simple, Maria. I think it, either scenario could be the case and he would still be doing this. He's clearly... He's not done. Whatever happened in this breakup, he's, it didn't, I don't know, it didn't tick the boxes for him. He needs, he needs something else to happen here. And I think it's, he wants to upset Liv or he wants to push her till she reacts to him. And I would well, say So is Liv, he looking for a reaction until, yes, she, until she yes. explodes at him? Do you think it will just stop? I mean, I think you must appeal to, to reason first, Liv, in London, before you explode and hit him over the head with a tea tray. Um, <laughs> because, he, you know... I, I, like, I, like that, I like that Liv has a tea tray in her lovely flat. With her <laughs> well, I was going to say something harsher, and then I thought, oh, no, better not. Let's make it yeah. something genteel, like a tea tray. <laughs> Mm, yeah, yeah. Because it went really a, a, rolled up radio, a rolled up radio times. <laughs> That's it. Very good, Graham. The violence, but without the violence, basically. And yeah, it's a yeah. good read, too. <laughs> oh, the, I, I get it for the articles. And then, of course, we've got the listings. It's very, very handy. Uh, live in London. I, I look forward to finding out what the listeners think you should do. Uh, Lucy's been in touch. I was in a similar scenario. Oh, Lucy, I feel your pain. The ex was hanging around because he was interested in my housemate. And later, they started dating. Very awkward and made even worse because she and I did not get on at all. So neither of them gave a fig about tramping on feelings or personal space. Well, that sounds like a really lovely living situation. <laughs> you didn't like her anyway, and now she's going out with your ex. Woohoo! Uh, but you got through it. You got through it, Lucy. Uh, Daisy says, Liv needs to be canoodling on the sofa with her hot new man next time her ex comes over. Reckon they'll stop pretty sharpish after that. I mean, that is the thing. If Liv mo moves on, then, I mean, he can't. Would he? Maybe. I don't know. He seems quite, yeah, fixated. Ah, now, this is this is the advice you need. Bunty in Cheadle has spoken. I'd say this chap still carries a torch for you, my dear, which is his issue, not yours. I'm remembering a very old saying by a famous philosopher whose name I have ironically forgotten. It's probably you, Bunty. You probably said this. Which goes, if I love you, it need not concern you. Here's the thing. If you're happy where you are, just ride this out. You'll soon get bored and move on. Every picnic attracts its share of wasps. 
See, oh, I mean, every every morsel is a, a T-shirt slogan. Thank you so much, Bunty. That is true. Just write it out. And Anne in York says, What are Liv's flatmates playing at? Can't they agree to meet elsewhere? Seems they're happy to ride roughshod over her feelings. Liv should ask them to support her, as boyfriend is clearly doing this deliberately. I mean, there's some messing around. There is some messing around. I've got another letter. Here it is. Dear Graham and Maria, two years ago, my wife and I reconnected with our daughter after a few years of not speaking. We had a tense relationship in her teenage years, particularly before she went to university. And as soon as she moved out, she decided she needed space, asking us not to contact her unless she started the conversation. We respected this. She reached out last year and has since decided to maintain contact. And we had an ongoing discussion about where things went wrong, what she felt like she needed from us and the areas that she needed space. We've accepted that we were rather overbearing, especially towards her relationships and career life. And we've been working through this as a family. Our relationship is now the strongest it's ever been and we're continuing an open line of communication and understanding. How grown up. Now, however, a few months ago, she entered a relationship with someone that we think is very bad news and we're not sure how to handle this. He's very charming at first sight, but after meeting him a few times, he seems to be rather controlling and she doesn't seem as confident or outgoing as she did before. She's not asked for our advice, so we don't want to weigh in and return to square one. But equally, we don't want her to suffer in a damaging relationship. How can we bring this up without being the overbearing parents that pushed her away in the first place? And that is from Nick in Portsmouth. Nick in Portsmouth, the first two paragraphs of your letter are so grown up and so accepting and so well written and the way that you have reconnected with your daughter. I'm feeling that she's perhaps an only child. But then you just sort of can't help yourself. You know, it's interesting that... All of the reasons that she wanted to break contact were because you were overbearing, because you wanted to micromanage her relationships and career life. And you've got over that. But it's creeping back, Nick in Portsmouth, because your daughter is a grown up. She can date who she wants. And as parents, it's so hard when you've micromanaged their, as toddlers and children, then you must let go because you will go back to square one. You're on good ground at the moment and keep it that way she will survive this it's interesting when you say you know we seem to think he's rather controlling it's either you being controlling or a boyfriend being controlling and perhaps there's no surprise there that she has gone for somebody that she sort of recognizes and she'll she'll realize in fullness of time as she did with you that she has to break that off or not. You know, you may be wrong. This is early days. But I urge you, Nick in Portsmouth, to just butt out on this one because you're doing really well. And be there should you need to, to pick up the pieces. But you cannot get involved. Graham, what do you think? Well, I mean, listening to you read out that letter, I just thought, who'd have kids? I mean, (laughs) it just sounds exhausting. And, you know, picking over the eggshells of their relationship, it's just so difficult. I would say, 
I mean, it's it is difficult. Part of you wants to go. You know that conversation we had about us uh, not interfering in your relationships. Uh, can we have one? Can we have one last go uh, before? And then we'll never mention it again. But it won't work because if he is genuinely controlling as a as a boyfriend, he will be looking to fan the flames of division between exactly. this this woman and her parents. So if he if he sees a gap there where he kind of thinks, oh right, I can get rid of them, he'll do it. So Nick, be very very careful because if you're right. This it will be it'll be you know uh, a holiday for him if you start uh, upsetting your daughter again. So I'm afraid I have an awful feeling that Maria's right that you just have to watch this unfold. Um, which you know you love this girl and you don't want her in a damaging relationship. But you know what? I, you know, from a parent's point of view, no relationship's going to be perfect. You're not going to think any man is right for her or girl or whatever. It, it's always going to be kind of painful to watch this girl you love in a kind of vulnerable situation where she might get hurt. And I think all you can do is hang around and be there to pick up the pieces at the end. And, you know, if she ends up getting married to this guy, you've just got to slap a smile on your face and go to the wedding because there's no there's no way of interfering and winning, I would say. No. I mean, it is interesting that Nick quite uh, openly acknowledges that him and his wife have been you know, controlling of her. And and it caused her to not be in touch with you for a year, Nick. So, I mean, you have recognised in this man something that you know because you are also that person. But you're doing it from a parental point of view. He's doing it from a boyfriend point of view. I have faith in your daughter, Nick, that she knows her own mind and she's trying very much to exercise her right to make her own choices and make her own decisions. And if that is true, then she will see through this man or she will recognise something in him that she saw in you and think, no, this is not what I want. I just think you have to trust her, Nick. It's such a difficult yeah, actually, one because you sound like a nice man, but it's you've got to just trust her. And I, I agree with you, Maria, because actually it is interesting that she did have the strength of mind to go, whoa, Neddy, I'm out of this. If you can't, if you can't respect me, if you can't back out of my life a bit, um, I, I don't need you in my life. I mean, that is really strong to be able to yeah. do that to your parents. Is is incredibly uh, brave, and I mean, it's not not a very nice thing to do, but I mean, clearly. Uh, her parents had kind of pushed her to that point. But it is textbook that she would now be in another controlling relationship. Isn't it I hate just... controlling people. I hate controlling people. I'll go out with you. <laughs> well, it's what um, you know, isn't it? You kind yeah. of gravitate to what you know. So she recognised that but didn't want to be controlled by them. I mean, it must have got bad for her to sever all ties. And now she's being controlled by someone else, but in a slightly different way. But she will wake up and see that at some point, I hope. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of parents, lots of parents, lots of children who've been in this situation. What did you think? Shazza in Swansea. Such good advice from Shazza in Swansea. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer still. Invite them round. Ooze charm. Tell her how lovely he is. A perfect partner. How utterly perfect you think he is. And then step back and watch her drop him. I mean, that is the thing. If you fight this, if you push them away in any way, he will swoop in. He'll love it. So I think very good advice from Shasta. Yes, invite them round. Be nice. Dawn and Inverness, please remember how far you've come with your daughter. 
even if you didn't have the history you do, it's hard to make someone see something about their relationship they're not ready to see. Your daughter may need you in future. Please just be ready to be there for her. This means showing you love and care for her by saying nothing. Again, wise words. Ian and Preston. Accept that your daughter will not choose who you would choose. Be friendly. Show your daughter that you respect her choices. Yep, it's hard. It's difficult, but that's what you must do. And Andy in Stoke Golding says, It seems the parents have tried to learn their lesson about being controlling over their daughter, but can't help themselves. The daughter may be heading into a controlling relationship with her boyfriend, but she seems strong enough to get out uh, of it as she did with her parents. My advice is to be there to support their daughter when it goes wrong. And in the meantime, get a dog and control that. We haven't had the get a dog advice for a long time. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to meet my first guest of the day. Unbelievably, it's 20 years ago uh, since John Darwin, for he, headed out to sea in his canoe, faked... <laughs> and faked its own death. Now the story finally comes to the small screen, starting tomorrow night at 9 o'clock on ITV, uh, starring in The Thief, His Wife and The Canoe, as John Darwin, is Eddie Marsden. Hello, Eddie Marsden. Hello, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. All the better for this. I Honestly, I, did, I sat down yesterday and I thought, I'll watch the first one. Three hours went by. I haven't seen the last one, but it's... oh. It's one of those things, I think everyone listening will think they remember this story, but this is a proper deep dive, and there's so many bits you don't remember. Uh, what What did you remember about it before you got involved in the project? I remember him coming back and saying that he had amnesia. I don't remember him initially going missing. I remember him coming back and thinking, that's weird. And then slowly the story began to unravel in the press when they released the picture of him in Panama with the estate agent and with Anne. So, uh, so you begin to watch it and think, well, this is, is this true or is he lying? And then it all unraveled. That's all I remember, really. And honestly, you are one of those actors. I kind of think if you're in it, it's going to be good. You don't do rubbish. But the, weirdly, the other actor who I think that about is Monica Dolan. And so you're, you're in this together. So it's a real uh, stamp of approval, a real stamp of quality. Um, is this, is it fair to say, so this is her version of the story? Yes, she's narrating it. Um, Anne Darwin is, is narrating it. But it's fascinating in that, one of the one of the main themes of the show is the culpability of Anne Darwin and how culpable she was. So it's fascinating that Monica plays this character, but you never know whether it's a true point of reference or not. And Monica's the, such a good act, actress that you still have sympathy for her, even though you still have that moral dilemma. And in terms of, you know, involvement, how many of the real people did you encounter making this? Because obviously the sons are around and everybody. Uh, we didn't have anything to do with them. I think there was there was a contact between Anne Darwin and the original journalist who wrote the manuscript and to Chris Lang, the writer. I always use, I always try to find what music the characters I'm playing like. So I... I got them to find out from Anne Darwin what music John Darwin liked, apparently. And apparently like Dolly Parton and ABBA. <laughs> I used to listen. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure. I don't know whether he had a secret life she didn't know about, but he, he, he liked Dolly Parton and ABBA. Yeah, the clues were there. Uh, that... <laughs> <laughs> um, and... 
the thing about him is he he's very good at the big ideas. He's very good at these big things, which, you know, which are kind of they're so big, they're kind of clever. But he was very bad on detail. Terrible on detail. I mean, all of it really was just an instinctive response to to, to the fact that he was going to be humiliated by being made um, bankrupt. And he couldn't face that. He couldn't face the, the, the humiliation. He had such a fragile ego that he had to create this idea. He had, there's a great line in it when, when um, Chris Lang has written this scene where uh, John explains the whole plan and at the end and goes, and then what? And he has no answer. <laughs> That's typical John Darwin. Yeah, it's that fabulous bit on the, when the, the insurance person is explaining that he's got to be missing for seven years before he'll be declared dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he screams. It's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> really good. And I, and see, did you did you film it in, see, is it called, is it pronounced Seaton Carew? Seaton Carew, but now they call it Seaton Canoe and they have ice cream <laughs> with canoes in it because it's so famous. But the amazing thing was when we went to Seaton Carew, we realised that... Uh, um, it's only about as big as, a, as a, a, any high street in any town in the country. It's not very big. And when he initially went missing, that was the biggest event that happened in that town for 100 years because it was full of TV companies and the emergency services all came out and went out into the sea. And he was, two days later, he was pronounced dead. Two weeks later, he was walking up the high street with a limp and a beard thinking no one would recognise him. I mean... It, it... It, and and yet, and you say that, but he did sort of get away with it. He did, although when we was there, there were lots of people coming up to saying, I always knew, I always, me, I knew. No one else knew but me, I knew. There was loads of people telling us they all knew. Um, yeah, I must say, if people watch it, I don't think people will think this is a good idea. They will, I don't think insurance <laughs> companies will be inundated after this. <laughs> and did you did you get to go to Panama? Where did you film the, the lovely sunny bits? Well, we were going to go to the Dominican Republic, but then two days before we were due to fly, it went on a red list. So we had to change and go to Portugal. So we shot it all in Portugal, but it looks fantastic because it's very tropical in Portugal. There is, and I have to say, I, I, I mean no disrespect, you and Monica Dolan look so British in those scenes. Oh, no. <laughs> the two of you in the sand. Just, oh, no. <laughs> Eddie, you may not know the answer to this, but I'll ask anyway. Uh, because the story is so ripe for uh, a film or TV adaptation, how come it's taken so long to get to the screen? Uh, I have no idea. I have no I idea. I did say I you might that... not know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I don't know. I mean, I think it took someone like, it takes someone like a writer, the level of Chris Lang to do it justice, really, because there's so many elements to it. It's funny and it's tragic and it's dark. Um, and, and some writers would choose to go with one or the other. And you need someone like Chris Lang who can bring all those elements in and have the confidence to, to find the balance. You're so right. It He absolutely has done that because what's the, the biggest surprise is that somewhere in the middle of this whole mess, there is some love between these two people. That's what we've found the most, I found the most interesting. And also in, in this show, John has an incredible libido. I mean, he seduces her all the time. 
<laughs> it's very strange for me, you know, because you, I mean, I can, I mean, I've had a lot of sex on screen. None of it has been consensual, I have to say. But this has been, John is, John is the most seductive character I've ever played. I mean, he's wearing a wetsuit and he seduces a woman in every episode. In fact, yes, you don't ex- you don't expect Eddie Morrison to to be doing nude scenes in this in this show, and yet there there is the Mars and Moon, the Mars and Moon in episode two. We went. We took. I took my daughters to study in A level drama to the Q and A with her A level class to to sit and watch it, and then my bum came up at the beginning of the second episode, and she gave me such a look. <laughs> yeah, you knew, you knew this moment was going to happen. <laughs> um, and you're a very busy man because you've got this on on TV uh, from tomorrow night, but you've got uh, a bunch of films coming out. Any particular that you want to flag up and alert the Virgin listeners to? Yes, I have a movie coming out on Netflix uh, now. I think it came out yesterday called uh, Choose or Die. Uh, directed by a brilliant young British uh, director called Toby Meekins and starring Asa Butterfield and Lola Evans, two young British stars. And it's a horror movie. I have a movie coming out next month with Chris Pine called The Contractor, which is a really good movie. Um, I'm doing a show for Amazon at the moment called The Power, which will be coming out next year. And we're kind of shooting, finishing off shooting this year. I have to interrupt you, Eddie. What's so funny about this is you've listed three things there. None of them are on the list that I have. Like, you obviously have so much coming out. I don't know. You know what? I don't know. Honestly, I am almost like a session musician. I just turn up. I'm like an old turn. I just turn up and do it now. But no, you say that. But as I said earlier, you are in good things. You must. You must be a bit picky. I am picky. To be honest, I'm very picky. I always make sure... That the thing I'm doing is completely different from the thing I did before. That's the best. That's that. That's the best advice anybody ever gave me, because I'm not the kind of actor that you want. You know, if you if you if you, I'm not the kind of actor that men want to be and women want to sleep with. I'm a character actor, so the best way to be a character actor is to be as diverse as possible, and that's why I try and mix it all up. No, you. Well, you've played a blind already because I remember it must be about. 10, 12 years ago, I was suddenly kind of, I need to know that man's name because you suddenly started cropping up in things and you were brilliant in everything. And um, I'm so delighted for you that it's it's gone so, so well. And look at you now, a leading man, a leading man in... Uh, <laughs> you are the leading man. You're the hero. Well, the anti-hero. Yeah, I don't know what you are. I'm the, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the anti-hero, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Thief, His Wife and the Canoe. It is a really enjoyable watch. And it's it's everything Eddie said. It, it's funny. It's bleak. It's it's the whole package. And it starts tomorrow night at nine o'clock on ITV and ITV Hub. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Eddie. Take care of yourself. My pleasure. Thank you very much. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, last Tuesday on Netflix saw the launch of Hard Cell. It's six half-hour episodes and it stars my guest, Catherine Tate. Welcome back to the world, Catherine Tate. Hello, Graham Norton. Hello. <laughs> and honestly, <laughs> uh, it is so great to have you back. I'm such a terrible comedy audience. I do lots of kind of nodding and going, there, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that, yeah <laughs> that's good. And your show made me laugh out loud. Uh, oh. So congratulations. 
Thank you, how, thank you. How did this come about? How long was the gestation of Hard Cell? Tell us all about mm, it. Mm, the concept, the concept. Um, how, <laughs> well, do you know what? I, <laughs> tell me, what was the inspiration? Mm, mm. Um, do you know what? I watched, years ago, I watched a thing called Summer Heights High. Do you know yeah. Summer Heights High? Chris I do, Lily? of course. Absolutely fell in love with it. And I just thought, God, what a great thing. And I always had it as a little thing in the back of my mind. I'd love to do something like that where I play multiple characters in the same uh, environment. And I had the idea of doing it in a prison ages ago. And when I spoke to someone about it, they said, it sounds really good, but we've, we've heard there's a show coming out called Orange is the New Black. <laughs> So we're going to stay away from that, which, of course, was set in a women's prison. And so I just shelved the idea, went on to do other things and stuff. And then um, I guess two couple of years ago, someone else approached me and said, have you got any ideas? And I said, well, actually, yeah, I would like to, to, to still do this. And, and they said, let's do yeah, Let's go for it. And I also think because, as I understand it, we pitched it to Netflix. And it was the very reason that because Orange is the New Black has actually finished now. I think they've done their last season. They said, oh, actually, this, this, this could sort of dovetail nicely in. So that's how it... So it was quite a long gestation period in my mind. And then it was a long gestation period because COVID happened and we got shelled for... Um, we got put back for a whole year um, oh, wow. uh, in terms of filming. And then in the end, we just last summer just went, oh, come on, let's just do it. And um, amazingly, we did it. You know, you get sort of tested everyone's in a bubble you get tested and and I think they were really really fortunate in in the sense that um hardly anyone got it and we didn't have any sort of casualties from 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 COVID so that was good and I mean it, it does make me laugh in terms of like TV commissioning that they thought there was that much crossover between this and not yeah. just the new black <laughs> you know you can't yeah. have two shows set in a woman's prison <laughs> people are just not going to be able to cope with that <laughs> and of course too it's confused too confused Where, what are all these women doing there's so many criminals about <laughs> um, and when you're writing these characters do you see them or does that happen later you know because the, the they all look so distinct yeah 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 um, no, I sort of had a little bit in my mind about how they'd look, but no, it's not really until you go and do the um, uh, kind of like, uh, it's it's kind of like dress up. Do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll literally go to to Vanessa White, who designs all the, the makeup and, and Neil Gorton, who uh, designs all the prosthetics. And they'll say, what about this? What about this? And it's it's literally like a day of dress up and you go and I've got I've got this. Um, whole kind of like gallery of 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 looks that didn't make it. Like for example, Roz Roz at one point was going to look completely different, and then we found that we found that wig that that was sort of like cut off at the back that had two plaits. And I thought, oh, it's just too good. It just looks. It's exactly the kind of thing you think she's just gone. I'm just going to cut my hair at the back. I'm going to cut my hair at the back and leave two wig, two plaits. Do you know what I mean? And I just. And also, you know, you want to have the kind of hair that it's not a show you can be vain with. You know what I mean? It's not a show because yeah. they're not because because obviously, you know, no one's no one's exactly looking their best inside. You know what I mean? And it, you've got to make it look like it's hair they could have done themselves. You know, you can't have great blow dries every, you know, yeah. with every character. Uh, the Scottish with the scary Scottish woman, I can't remember her name, is Big she lip. based on... 
I feel like I I know her. I feel like I've interviewed her. <laughs> um, she no no. I mean a no. Complete okay, figment of, complete figment of my imagination. But then again, I don't know who you've interviewed. So <laughs> I, it was a Scottish singer, a particular Scottish singer. Oh really? <laughs> And I just thought, is that based on her? We'll draw a veil. We'll move on. We'll move on. Funny, no. <laughs> and uh, we've got we've got to mention uh, Cheryl Ferguson, who oh, to say okay. she's a good sport. I mean, she is a very good Absolutely. sport. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have wished for her. You know, because I was, I I said to her, um, look, I've I because the thing is, this was the crazy risk I took. I wrote the whole show and pitched the whole series without even asking her if she wanted to be involved. Oh, I wow. Just thought, yeah, I just thought it was too, because the thing is, I had it in my mind to have Cheryl. I, well, I had it in my mind that I wanted someone to come in and, and, and be themselves because that is what people do in prison. You know, they, 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 they go in, you know, there are charities that go in, you know, big. I mean, the, the idea came from... Um, a, a, a musical um, that that a cha- oh gosh I should know their name it's it's kind of an initiative that does go into prisons goes into women's prisons puts on musicals and it is the most incredible experience if you've never done it if you've never seen it it's an incredible experience and um, and so I thought oh let's 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 do that and and wouldn't it be better for the comedic value of this if it was a recognisable person playing themselves. And once I got it into my head that it was going to be Cheryl, it just, it was like, it just sort of t- took over. And I just thought, oh, I'm, I want to write it and see how it is, present it to her. And if she says no, I'll just change it to someone else. But it was just, it's funny that when you go in, you know, they all recognise her from EastEnders. And I said, look, do you mind? Everyone's going to call you Heather. And she was just, as you say, it's such an understatement to say she was, was a sport because she just jumped in and she said, I don't mind, do what you like. Don't mind what you say. Um you know, and it was that thing you have to say, can you, do you mind sort of like reacting as if people were doing that in real life? Which, of course, I'm sure every day she gets people shouting out, Oi, Heather, at her. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and it is terrific. And it's interesting you mentioned Edinburgh because uh, Matthew Horne was in a few weeks ago talking yeah, about Nan, the movie. Yeah. And, yes, yes, uh, yes. I, and funny enough, yes, Matthew chose a pulp song as well, didn't he? He chose Help the Aged. Oh, yes, he did. Yes. <laughs> uh, but what was interesting, I didn't realise that he'd been in your Edinburgh show. Yeah. And completely by mistake as well. Not by mistake, but <laughs> I, <laughs> it was a complete accident. No, um, it was that the guy I'd gone up to do my show with, I always knew he was going to have to leave. Um, because I, I kind of did a version of my TV show when it, you know, it was in its early incarnation. Yeah. It was just me and him. I just needed a straight man. And um, and it was my friend and he was doing it. But he was like, I, you know, I'm going to have to go. I've got to go in the last week. And I was like, it's all right, I'll find someone up there. When, I mean, it was, you know, I look back and I think, oh, my God, maybe it was just the folly of youth just going, yeah, I'll just find someone to, <laughs> you know, to, to be in my show with me. It'll be fine. <laughs> And then um, I went to see this um, show called um, Mac and McKinnon because, uh, no, no, Matt and McKinnon, sorry, excuse me, Matt and McKinnon, because Matt used to be in a double act. And I saw these two guys and they were absolutely brilliant. And I then thought, oh, here's a good idea. I'll actually get 
two of them to play one person's part and split split all the roles rather than ask one person to do come in and do you know seven different sketches I thought you know or eight different sketches get them to do four each and I just approached them and they said yes and funnily enough one of the um sketches that I needed filling was um the, the nan and like in a very early version of the nan where I just put a headscarf on and went you know it's cold out and it and um and <laughs> And and we just randomly divvied up the parts, and Matt Matt got the part of the grandson, and um, that's how yeah. it started. Really, just and, sort of like total serendipity. And it it I thought watching Hard Sell, I thought what was really interesting was the way you've pitched your performance in that you're not in a sketch. Are you aware no. of that? That actually, I'm not in a sketch. I've got to I've got to tone my performance in a different way yeah completely and also you haven't got a live audience there so you know this and you, you know this is basically a single camera comedy you know a single camera um show you know and also it's got a lot of it's got a lot of light and shade in it. I don't know if you got to the end of it but there's a lot there's a lot of light and shade in it, and it, 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 it I would say ends in a very different way than it starts and um and that was great I, I want to do that you know these are they're not sketch characters although you know you're doing because there's so many you know there's so many things to cover you are kind of often doing bite-sized bits but no it's long form you know you have to um and also because of the style of the show is documentary you you have to be real with it you know there's a yeah. there's you know real real in it real in a comedy show so you know I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm, you know we're not we're not doing social comments but and you you follow the story over the the six weeks of the the musical uh, yes. production in in the prison but already you know this is a hit this is a netflix hit you're in the top 10 there you know where you can tell what shows are doing really well on netflix so presumably uh they're going to want some more hard sell i don't know i mean hope i, I you know it would well it's one of those things that you think um yes of course it ends on a way that you would want more but it also i also don't mind if it ends the way it does because I like things not being resolved. But of course, it has it has ended in in in, in a way that would suggest there's certainly lots of things un 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 um, untied up. You know. Well, listen, so I, I hope so. it. I hope. Well, I also hope it comes back because seriously, it's it's love. We've missed you. You know, I didn't realise I missed you till I was watching it and thinking, wow, oh. she is so good. Uh, oh. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled you're back in the world. Uh, Hard Sell, it's called. It's uh, Look out for it on Netflix. It's all there now. Thank you so much sell for joining us. Can I just say, Graham, Sell with a C as in prison cell. Don't uh, yes. be looking at, don't be typing up with an S and get selling sunset. No, no, you'll be fine. Listen, this audience shops at Waitrose. They know how to. They know how to spell. They're they good. know what up. They yeah. know what hard sell they mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, take care of yourself. Enjoy Thank the rest you, Greg, of your Easter. It. All right, take and care. You. Lovely to talk to you. Still to come, a couple of comedians telling us about their new tours. Alistair McGowan is going musical with the piano tour and the album he's made to go with it. Plus, Nish Kumar takes us in the direction of satire with his current tour, Your Power, Your Control. But before all. All that. Let's see what show chef Martha's been up to. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. So, Easter roast with a cheesy twist. What have you made for us today? Oh, yes. I mean, it had to be lamb. It has to be lamb on Easter. So, I've stuck with the classic, but a nice little twist. It's a Diana Henry recipe for roast lamb with pistachio, feta, and lemon stuffing. Oh, 
I, I mean, in my book, Diana Henry is a genius. Oh, I yes. love Diana Henry. And this is in the Waitrose Weekend newspaper, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, this weekend you can pick it up in store. And it, yeah, it is a beautiful cut of meat and then just this delicious, zingy, salty filling in the middle. All right, I tell you what, uh, let's find out what it tastes like. We've got an expert taster today, Jane Middlemas. Yes, she's... She's she's lurking, lurking, looking for lamb. I'm literally haven't left. I heard there was lamb in the building, and I was just like, I'm not leaving until I taste this. No, because you're a proper foodie. I mean, you won MasterChef, didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, I absolutely, Graham. I'm I'm just like all about food. I mean, when I did MasterChef, I sort of like. I wanted to learn so much that to the point where when we weren't filming, I was going to chef's kitchens to work in the kitchen to learn more. I mean, I just love it. I'm all about food. So this is like, I listen to your show all the time. And the bit that I just think I'd love to do it is this bit. So it's like a dream coming true. All right. Have you have you got a, a delicate slice that you can shove in your? I've gong? got. Do you know what, Graham? I've already eaten about half of it. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> do you want me to I'm eat s- it live on the radio? Or do you want me to tell you what it's already? No, been no. Like? You don't. You don't have to chew. You don't have to, you don't have to chew live on the radio. Isn't it? There's nothing nicer than after a Sunday lunch going into a sort of meat coma. Oh, that the way. Oh, oh, lovely. Okay, what does it taste like? Describe it. Firstly, I've just got to take you to the leg of lamb itself. It is the softest, most delicate piece of lamb I've ever tasted. It's cooked to perfection. It's sort of like that, you know where you get a leg of lamb and it's just pink in the middle, but like the consistency is just like so perfect. It's absolutely gorgeous. (laughs) Then, Graham, you get to the middle bit and it's just got this sort of like salty and the feta is not overwhelming because feta is such delicate taste and there's a bit of lemon coming through there and then there's this lovely crunch of the nuts as well it's absolutely stunning to the point where i'm sitting here and i'm thinking when's this conversation ending because i want to get i want to get tossed <laughs> there's plenty left don't worry <laughs> oh, all right jade thank you very much you continue uh, we'll, oh. we'll, we'll we'll try to talk over the uh, chewing in the background <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tasting that, Jade. All right, Martha, uh, how do we make it? How do you get the stuffing in there, all that? So you want to get yourself a leg of lamb. You can buy one with the bone in or you can buy one in Waitress, which has already had the bone removed, which I think I would probably recommend for this dish because it just makes it a little bit more straightforward. So you want to unroll that lamb. And then if there's not quite space for the filling, just take a sharp knife and make a few cuts just to spread it out a little bit thinner. And then we're going to make our stuffing. Um, So I love stuffing. It's just the best. It's the best part of Christmas. So why not have it at Easter as well? (laughs) So we're going to saute half of a red onion in a pan. And then we're going to mix that with some fresh breadcrumbs, some parsley and mint chopped up nice and finely, some crumbled feta. And then we've got <laughs> lots of garlic <laughs> because you can't have lamb without garlic. Two cloves of garlic go into your kind of filling along with some lemon and a preserved lemon. And preserved lemons are brilliant because they've been preserved in this salty liquid. So they are both lemony and fresh, but also they season that meat for you. So you don't need to add Diana any Henry. salt. Diana Henry loves a preserved lemon. Oh, she does. <laughs> and I can see why. <laughs> I'd never heard of them till I started using her recipes. I was like, what? Uh, yes. 
They're quite zingy, I will preserve lemon. They okay, are. Okay, so, so you, you've got all that in there and then you do you tie it up with string? Yeah, so that there's just some pistachio kernels and then an egg to go in there, mix it all together and then yes. So what I've just, you can tie it up with butcher string or if you buy the rolled leg of lamb from Waitress, it has this kind of elasticated string around it when it's rolled. So I just cut, held on to that. So then when you roll it back up again, kind of stretch that elastic uh, string back around it so re-roll it um but yeah the legs of lamb in waitress are 25 percent off this weekend so make sure you get yourself one of those and then when it's out of the oven so it goes in 15 minutes at a really high heat temperature so 240 degrees just for 15 minutes to get a lovely crispy crust and then it goes in for an hour at 180 and you can forget about it it's quite a slow it's quite a quick cook i'd say for a lamb often legs of lamb require four or five hours of your time and your oven's work so it's quite nice to have one diana's clever like that just an hour and a half and it's on the table and where do you stand on resting meat after it comes out of the oven? How long do you rest uh, something like this? So for lamb, lamb, um, as Jane was saying, is quite soft and succulent anyway. So I would rest my lamb for maybe 15 to 20 minutes. But if you cover it in a bit of foil, it's not going to get cold. So don't stress if it's ready too early and you haven't done your potatoes. Like it will sit on the side quite happily. But yeah, 20 minutes is quite nice, a bit quicker than, say, a beef or a chicken. Uh, listen, that sounds a triumphant uh, dish. Roast lamb with pistachio feta and lemon stuffing. Uh, the recipe is by Diana Henry. You can find it in the Waitrose Weekend newspaper. Uh, but it's also, if you go to our Instagram, at Virgin Radio UK, and stab around there, you will find that recipe. And as Martha said, Waitrose are offering 25% off their whole British legs of lamb. Uh, the offer ends this weekend. It's Easter. We need sweet treats. And look who's here. It's Martha Collison. Hello. Hello. How Hello. are you? Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you too. Uh, this looks so adorable. Just the cutest thing in the world. Uh, what are you calling it? Oh, thank you. Um, this is my Easter carrot patch tray bake. And this is your own recipe? It is, yeah. It's one, one from my brain. <laughs> um, Very good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, before we get uh, how to make it, let's go over to Jane. Jane Middlemas, our food taster, our fish. I feel like the some sort of Roman emperor. Uh, <laughs> you are. Thumbs yeah, up, taste, thumbs down. Taste, yeah, taste <laughs> my food. Taste my food for me. Uh, <laughs> we talked about your MasterChef credentials yesterday. So are, do you have a sweet tooth? I mean, if you cook, do you bake or do you prefer savoury? No, I'm much more a savoury girl. So it's quite interesting to eat this in the mornings because you get a real, you can have a real sort of like, an overview because if you're into sweet things you'll just eat anything you know sweet so I'm much more bag of crisps than a bar of chocolate mm. so it's been really interesting tasting this because I, I feel like I can sort of like really sort of go into the flavours of the cake because I'm not used to eating sweet stuff Go, you're like a cake sommelier. Okay, <laughs> off you go. Well, basically, it's got like this hint of ginger running through the sponge, and then there's something else in there which I can't quite pinpoint. But it's, and Martha will tell you. But there's there's, there's something in there. But the really lovely thing that I like because it's quite a sweet cake and it's really brilliant for the family because it looks amazing. But it's got walnuts in it. So the sweetness is offset, not just by the texture of the walnut, but because the walnut is, you know, it, it sort of like is quite a bland it's a, quite a bland flavour, so you, you're not getting overwhelmed by the sweetness. But then we move, Graham, onto the ice, the the icing, which is cream mm. cheese, which is just it's spot. I mean, Martha's some sort of 
genius. But the best, one of my favourite bits about this cake is the chocolate soil. The chocolate soil is made out of um, caramel, I think it tastes like. It's got some sort of caramel in there, but it's also got, it's more like a dark chocolate. And what it does is it just gives this really lovely mouthfeel to the cake where you've got this sort of like this slight crunch to go with the softness of the sponge and then the sort of like the the, the walnuts in it. So it's a really beautiful, fully rounded Easter cake. And I'm not a sweet person, but I will be taking a bucket of that home. Wow. I'd have just gone with, it's nice. It's nice, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, Martha's so happy you're there. I am finally, delighted. Finally, That's someone's amazing. appreciating her cooking. Me, me just shoving it in my gob. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, yeah. I'm on a sugar high. Uh, thank you very much, Jane. Oh, uh, uh, by the way, do go to our Instagram, at Virgin Radio UK, uh, because you have to see this cake. It's adorable. It's like a little, it's like a little vegetable patch, but with little baby carrots growing in, in the chocolate soil. So how do we make it? How hard to make it is it, Martha? It's actually not as hard as it looks. It's an impressive cake to look at because it's got that kind of illusion factor where it looks a bit like a carrot patch, but it's actually um, a carrot cake. So you've got your carrot cake base, which is kind of just quite a classic carrot cake, to be honest. It's oil-based, so you mix together your sugars, your oils, your eggs. Then you add into that flour, cinnamon, ginger, baking powder, some chopped walnuts for a bit of bitterness, and your grated carrots. That goes into the oven. And then whilst that's baking, you want to prep the topping bits. So we're going to make a cream cheese frosting, which is kind of bl- blending together butter, icing sugar, cream cheese for a lovely bit of tang. It's cl- such a classic combo with the carrot cake. And then we get a little bit chefy with our chocolate soil. I feel like that's a classic kind of gastro pub style thing to do, isn't it? Have a bit of a little bit of chocolate soil on the plate, but it really mm-hmm. works here because it is actually supposed to be soil, not just a little bit of <laughs> dust on your plate. So we're going to make that by combining some caster sugar with a little bit of water in a saucepan let that kind of bubble away until it's a syrup and then as it just as it starts to turn golden we're going to chuck in some dark chocolate then you want to mix really well with a spoon or a little whisk just for a few minutes and then it will start to just to crumble away it will go to soil almost immediately and then leave that to cool down and when you're ready to put your cake together, you're going to cover it with that cream cheese frosting. Take a pack of uh, chocolate fingers and arrange those all around the edge so it makes a little fence for it. And then sprinkle over your chocolate soil and nestle in carrots. I've bought these little carrot decorations from Waitrose because I couldn't quite be bothered to get up early enough to make my own decorations this morning. Well done, Martha. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. And I mean, I feel like the listeners will agree. But if you want to form your own mini vegetables, I mean, I've just done carrots, but you could do all sorts. You can make yourself little cauliflowers, little cabbages or whatever. Go whole Peter Rabbit on it. Do what you want. It, honestly, it is stunning. It's the sort of cake you kind of think, oh, I wish I had kids because... <laughs> They love this cake. It's so, so adorable. Thank you very much. Uh, the recipe, you can get it on the uh, Instagram account at Virgin Radio UK. Stab away there and it'll lead you to the full receipt. Uh, Martha, thank you very much. I will see you next week. Enjoy the rest of your Easter. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. You too. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to meet my first guest of the day. You know him as an award-winning impressionist and stand-up comedian, but now now he is a classical pianist. It's an amazing story. His name is Alistair McGowan. Hello, Alistair. Hello, Graham. Nice to talk to you. Uh, nice to talk to you. I love 
this story. You know, that whole kind of, you know, old dog, new tricks. I love it. So uh, tell us what it was 2015. Did you go back to the piano in 2015 or do you feel like that was the beginning? Uh, it, it was going back in a way because I did two years when I was a kid as so many people did I got to grade two when I was nine years old the dizzy heights of grade two of the eight grades one can take and then yeah I just stopped playing pretty much for about 40 years and then in 2015 I had some time on my hands and finally thought now's the time to start doing it and I got ambitious and um, I, it was Giles Brandreth actually who was a neighbour and good friend and Giles heard me playing and he said you should do a show a live show where you combine your stand-up comedy and impressions with this wonderful piano music I think people would come in their droves <laughs> so uh, it was it was sort of Charles Brandreth's idea that I do this this show putting the music with the stand up. But I mean it's sort of I mean I've listened to the album and it's gorgeous, mm. absolutely gorgeous. And Thank but you. Uh, when did you so 2015 you had a you thought oh I might do that again. I mean was was there uh, always a piano in your house? Did you go somewhere to learn? How did it happen? I, I had had a piano. I'd always intended to go back to it all my life, really. And uh, finally, uh, I met somebody who heard me just playing the two pieces that I could play. And she said, you've got some talent. And I said, well, that's all I can play. Uh, and then uh, suddenly I did a show about a composer called Eric Satie, 1866 to 1925, were Satie's dates. And uh, I was heard playing uh, some of his music by Sony. And they said, why don't you do an album? So the album came out two years later. And that really, again, was, was uh, just a stroke of, gene, uh, stroke of luck, really. They just said, you know, would you want to do an album? And I could play three pieces. And my agent at the time just said, well, learn some more. So uh, I did. I learned, I learned 34 pieces in a year and uh, that made the first album. And now we just brought out the second one as well from that same recording session, actually. But it's finally the second one is now out and available on my website. But they're all sort of relaxing pieces. As you said, that was the, the, the thing. I think that if people hear the, the words classical music, they think of huge, you know, orchestral pieces at the proms lasting 40 minutes with a huge orchestra. And there are these wonderful, simple piano pieces, um, pieces for every instrument, but certainly for the piano, which which I play uh, on the album and uh, in, in the show that I'm doing on tour. So uh, and I've absolutely loved it. It's changed my life. Um, is there a slight sense of uh, not regret, but do you kind of think, oh, the life I could have had if I if I'd stuck with the piano back then? Uh, a little bit, but uh, what I find after the shows that I do, a lot of people come up to me and they say the same thing. They're my age. They say, oh, I stopped playing when I was 10 or 11 or whatever, and I'm going to go back to it now. And I think if you start playing an instrument like the piano later in life, you've probably got a much better idea of how you want to, what you want to play, the pieces that you've heard subconsciously or consciously over the years. And you think, that's what I want to play. If you're seven or eight, it's very difficult, unless you're in a very musical household, to be exposed <laughs> to those pieces. So, so that's been great. And uh, you know, over the years, there's pieces by the likes of Chopin and Liszt and uh, Grieg and people who I've heard. And I thought, I'd love to play that one day. So now is that time. And uh, I don't know, I suppose it's the egotist in me that I play them publicly. My wife, though, is a proper classically trained singer. And she said, you cannot pretend you're a proper pianist because it takes a lifetime. Yes, you're right. I wish I'd done that. A lifetime to play really properly. So I play to a level and uh, have to put the comedy in between. Otherwise, uh, I'd be a total charlatan. And uh, I don't think people would be interested. But I think it's the first time anybody's done a show that goes from Frederick to Fred Sirex within uh, <laughs> half a minute. And um, let's face it, no, we, no, we, all, we all love to hear a bit of Fred. Even if we don't think we like the Chopin, we all like to hear a bit of Fred Sirex. What's wrong with that? So uh, hopefully that uh, that will keep people happy, Graham. <laughs> I know, because I am thinking that probably classically be as we were trying to throw a piano across the room right now <laughs> in fury. <laughs> like, 
No. I know it's a very different about... way. You know, it's either a different way of presenting classical piano or it's a different way of presenting comedy. But uh, but what I don't do, I should make clear, is what Tim Minchin does and Bill Bailey, Rainer Hirsch. They do it so well where they, they play music and they make the music funny. I don't do that. So I play the music straight. You know, one minute it's George Gershwin and the next minute it's George Clark from George Clark's Amazing Spaces. But I don't do the two together. So it's very much two, two shows for the price of one, if you like. And in physically, because, you know, as we get older, we lose. Like, I struggle to operate a can opener now with my old hands. Um, mm-hmm. Did you did, did you find you had to kind of get match fit when you started playing the piano again? With, with oh, yes. Yes. I mean, pianists who play from the age of four or whatever, they've built up musculature and, and, and a physical structure, skeletal structure, perhaps, that helps them play for hours on end, six hours, eight hours a day. The top pros will play. If I did that and I tried to do that, you know, I was getting all sorts of injuries. So you, you do. I mean, peddler's knee, I got, I don't know if it exists, but my knee hurt from having it poised over the, the pedals, sustained pedal for so many hours a day. I've had wrist injuries, thumb injuries, uh, arm injuries, shoulder injuries, because you are sort of hunched for a long time. So I've learned now to be careful and to practice in sort of 20 minute hits because, uh, yeah, and the fingers, obviously, you've got to be dexterous. So uh, I do finger exercises on trains when I'm traveling to gigs and things like that. So uh, it's it's a full time occupation. It's uh, And the people who do it properly, who've really trained, you know, uh, friends of mine now, they've become people like Anthony Hewitt, uh, James Lisney, uh, Craig, um, uh, Charles Owen, Lucy Parham. These are wonderful pianists, English pianists. And, uh, you know, they've been playing eight hours a day since they were four years old and they still put in that practice now. It's incredible. And I could never be as good as them. I know that. But I'd encourage anybody who's got an, an inkling to say it's never too late you know and it's not an expensive thing you can get a, a piano for 200 quid you know a, 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 an electric piano sometimes and uh digital piano practice on that on your headphones to your heart's content and uh you know just learn how to learn is my advice learn how to learn as well as learning how to play no it really is an inspirational story alistair so alistair you've started the tour already is that right that right Yes, I've done four or five dates and plenty more to go um, in the likes of uh, Shanklin and Poole and Canterbury. And uh, it uh, all ends up in uh, Ludlow uh, at the Ludlow Fringe on June the 18th uh, via London, the Cadogan Hall, which is the big one. I'm really looking forward to that one. No, I was looking down the list and like you are playing amazing, like the Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool, Cadogan Hall. I mean, it must be a, a wild experience for you. Like, it must be a, a pinch me childhood dream come true type thing. It is. The strange thing, Graham, is that uh, some people say, you know, and why not? They say, do you take the same piano with you everywhere? And you don't, unless you're top, top level. I think only two or three pianists in history have done that or been able to afford to do that. Uh, so you play whatever's there. And uh, sometimes they turn up and you think, this is a beautiful piano. And sometimes not quite so beautiful a piano. <laughs> um, so so you're how does it work? Do you, do you have to get there really early and kind of play it and kind of get a tuner yeah. in if you need one or something? You have to sometimes to see uh, the effect that you're getting on every piece and how they're going to sound and just to play them through. And everyone's different. I think all pianists are different. Some just want to play something on a piano. Others will play the whole show through, which I do. So I try them through. But yeah, sometimes it's a bit of a rude awakening. You think this this is not a good piano. It happened to me last week down in Devon. I had a, a piano, which was one of the worst pianos I've ever played. But um, actually, it was one of the best shows I've ever done because... Uh, uh, I don't know what happened. I just played the pieces and didn't think too much about it, really, I suppose. But, uh, yeah. And in terms of the... I, I, I'm trying to get my head around the energy of this night because, oh, obviously, well, yeah. stand-up... Stand-up is very, you know, boom, 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 and doing impressions. There's a kind of a, that performance energy that you need. And then, as you say, the music are these beautiful, uh, very, very relaxing classical pieces. What What's that like for the audience and for you? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And you, you, you hit it on the head. Um, yes, with stand-up, you have to be 
uh, energized. And I don't know if you're like this when you're doing a stand-up, but you're sort of thinking slightly ahead. You're doing one joke, and as the laugh is coming for that one, you're thinking, where am I going to next? What am I going to do next? Will I do that joke? Will I improvise a bit? Whereas with the piano, you know, you have to just think about the note you're about to play. If you start thinking ahead, certainly at my level, I've, I've, um, I've had it. So it's two different heads. And towards the end of the stand-up, I'm thinking, right, start to breathe, start to calm down, and then get ready to play the piano. Another big, deep breath, and don't think about what you're doing next until I'm into the next impression of Richard E. Grant, whoever it might be. I cannot afford to think ahead. It happens just in, in the moment. But it's rather wonderful. And, and do you literally kind of get up from the piano to do the stand-up or do you do it all from the piano stool? Uh, no, I, I have a microphone on the side. So when I, when I start to do my impression of Anthony Hopkins, or whoever it might be, I walk away from the piano. Anthony Hopkins, of course, very good pianist himself and composer. Composed some wonderful pieces of music. Uh, very artistic... Uh, gentlemen all around uh but no i go back and forth from uh from the from the piano to the microphone and um i do vary the the, the uh, impressions a little bit as well depending on where i am so uh, last week i was down in the in the uh, southwest and uh, got a lot of laughs out of doing uh, Stephen merchant which is nice local boy they like a bit of that and uh the week before that was in wales and uh doing people like robbie savage in wales they always enjoy that because they know yeah yeah we know robbie so that's a quite a challenge and uh, you know i'm sure i'm up in the northeast i probably just off my, my northeast impressions, who I can't think of right now, which is a shame because that would have been a great <laughs> movie. But and what oh, is Liverpool? That, do you Liverpool. Think... I'm in Liverpool soon, so I'll have to do me John Bishop in Liverpool. Although I did John Bishop once in Liverpool, and I said to scout to John Bishop, and I got heckled because he's from Runcorn. And he said he's not from Liverpool; he's from Runcorn. <laughs> so apologies to anybody who who doesn't know their geography as well, or knows their geography better than I do. I mean, God, they're so good, Alistair. Is, do you think they're kind of, is there any connection between them? Like the, the musicality of your ear, that you can hear that and reproduce those sounds. Is that something to do with your uh, sort of ability with playing music? I think I think it must be, you know, because, uh, you know, I'll listen very hard to, to a piece and, and I don't, I have the music there sometimes for the pieces I play because I'm playing 15 pieces, so you can't learn them all at my level. Um, but generally, uh, I learn, I can't read the music at the same time as playing. Some people can every single note and I admire those people, but now I have to sort of know it and hear it and repeat it in my head. So it is like an impression I'm doing at the piano in a way. And uh, yeah, there's a musicality to, to voices as well. And yeah, you know, that's why I love doing the two together it's uh, marrying both my skills and there there is definitely a similarity i'm trying to think of somebody somebody like michael moosley who i'm sure you're aware of by now does all the medical programs on television and he has a very very sing-song way of talking michael and i suppose copying the tune of michael's uh, accent and speech patterns is very similar so he'd be an interesting person to do that study of course so they've got to be very careful doing your impression of michael moosley because you can very easily turn into chris eubank if you're not careful mm. <laughs> um, by the way can i just say thank you for being so generous because often when you interview an impressionist you feel mm. like having to poke them with a stick and go dance monkey so thank you so much for making my job so easy and just doing it right. uh, i haven't, they, I haven't uh, done the best one which is which is your colleague frank who um i don't know when he's on now frank or he was on i don't know if he's still oh he's not on there is he now um fellow comedian let's say uh frank and i do do a lot of material with with other comics which i love doing because you can put your jokes into their mouths like i say that frank said uh recently frank skinner um it was great during the omicron variant of coronavirus that all the shops stayed open because during the first uh, wave of course all the big stores closed one of the first to close was timpson's ironically proven of course that key workers were not actually key workers at all anyway 
round of applause. Um, Alistair McGowan, the tour, the piano tour, uh, tickets and information on that, plus the album, uh, volume two, all available at alistairmcgowan.co.uk. Uh, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for the voices and and thank you for the inspiration. It's an amazing story. Enjoy your rest Thanks. of your Easter. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, time to meet my second guest of the day, probably best known as the host of The Mash Report. He's now on tour with a show called Your Power, Your Control. He's called Nish Kumar and he joins us now. Hello, Nish. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. When I say on tour, you really are on tour. Where were you last night? I'm in a hotel, I'm in a hotel room in Cardiff. I was in Brecon yesterday. And we stayed in Cardiff, and I'm in Cardiff tonight. Tell me this, Nish, because often when comics are on tour, they, you know, once the show's bed it down, then they don't have to think about it anymore. Da, 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 da. But because people go to your shows expecting it to be topical, da, 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 do you have to kind of set time aside each day to write new material? How does it work? You, yeah, you, you definitely have to stay. There's a, the, the second half of the show is kind of a, a, a prepared 70-minute show and that has a sort of beginning, middle, and an end. And then the and then but I do fifteen to twenty minutes after my support act in the first section, and that's the bit of the show that changes constantly and has to sort of stay up to date with current events, all of which are pretty terrible. I must say, it. I mean, good luck to you because you know I think like topical comedians they want stuff to be going on, but like, did we need this much stuff? Not, not this much stuff. This is too much. I think I speak for the entire human race when I say this is too much stuff. Oh, I mean, crazy. And and because uh, I suppose when you start, I mean, were you, were you always, when you started doing stand-up, was this always your thing? Were you always talking about current events and politics and things? No, I think when you start doing stand-up, you know, you know you're just sort of trying to work out how to write a joke. And so it, uh, for the first kind of, four or five years you're just scrabbling around and also I started in my kind of mid-twenties and so I, I was sort of getting into a lot of scrapes because you know I just spent a lot of time on night buses blind drunk um, and so it, it feels like you can sort of um, draw on the anecdotes around you and but what you're really learning how to do is how to kind of write and construct a joke and then once you feel a bit more confident in that, it becomes easier to give your opinions about things or talk about things in your personal life that might be tricky or complicated. But you can, I think you can only really do that once you spend a bit of time learning how to write a joke. And that, I think that's why a lot of people start. It feels like their material gets more personal as they go. But I think that's just because they're, that's what they wanted to do their whole careers. But they've just been learning how to sort of the mechanics of joke writing. So did the MASH report turn you into a political comedian or were you political already? No, no, I was doing... By, by the time the MASH report came up, I had already um, become what my mother lovingly refers to as a quote-unquote agitator. Um, so, <laughs> like, I, you know, my shows in... Two, my Edinburgh shows and that I subsequently toured in 2015 and 16 particularly were very much political comedy shows. And I was also hosting uh, News Jack, which was a, it's an open submission BBC Radio 4 Extra show. Um, and that's, uh, you know, anyone can write for it. It was a great, it was yeah. a really wonderful show. And uh, anyone can write for it and send in sketches and you get paid if they get broadcast. And we then, um, and I used to write a topical monologue every week. And that was where I sort of learned the skill of turning something around very quickly. Um, 
and you know because it's you start with nothing and by Thursday there has to be a show and that and then so by the time I got to the match report I'd sort of been well trained in the sheer terror of a blank word document and the full knowledge that something has to be on television in four days wow um, and because now people are going to see you that you know presumably you have you know you have an audience of like-minded people was it always like that or would you kind of butt heads with an audience where who you know because they did a different political agenda than you yeah definitely early on in my it definitely you know when you do club gigs they don't know who they're coming to see they've come to see a night of comedy and if what some of them did not come to see a very shrill, nasally voiced man yell about the government and <laughs> in that juncture. And you know what? Fair enough. Some of them came out for an evening's entertainment and they did not come to be screeched at by a hyena with a beard and curly hair. Um, but I, um, it, you sort of learn to navigate that and you learn, uh, you know, you learn to stand your ground uh, in places. And obviously now, you know, whatever city I pitch up to, I am sort of like the sort of pied piper of leftist malcontents. And so they, I just sort of lure them out and, it, you know, it's, it's absolutely fine. That's not to say we're without problems entirely, uh, Graham, because a man at Shrewsbury got very upset. And when I asked him why he was upset, he said his friend had booked the tickets and he was under the impression he was seeing Robert Schwanganathan. And oh. so it's not, it's not entirely <laughs> without its speed bumps, I should say. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he, he he went there. Okay. <laughs> he went there. And then afterwards, I, I, I did have him removed. And I did say that, that uh, you know, you need to understand that that might be a joke that Ramesh and I could tell about each other. But contextually, from a gentleman of your Caucasian persuasion, it has a different ring and energy. And uh, he was taken out uh, by the venue staff. And he was actually quite apologetic. And he said, look, I just want you to tell him I wasn't joking. I really thought that I was going to see Ramesh. And, I, 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 you know, after you sort of go, I felt bad for a second. I was like, oh, I can't believe us. And then I was like, no, that's so much worse. <laughs> yeah, he's doubling down. No, he really meant it. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got some big shows coming up next weekend. Uh, you're at the Hackney Empire. Yeah, very excited. Very, very excited. Uh, it's the first place I ever saw live comedy. Oh, wow. I saw and, Goodness Gracious like, Me do the live tour there in 1999. And it's a life-changing evening, I think. And on a good night, does your show turn into a kind of a rally? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say no, but Birmingham Town Hall <laughs> on Friday, it, it didn't feel unlike a rally. I think it's the best way I can phrase it. It didn't feel, I think also because when, when you do the sort of gigs in like the sort of town hall venues, it does feel a bit like you might be all about to go off and uh, smash something up. Um, but it was, um, but no, you uh, on, on, on a good night, um, on a good night, it can feel rally-esque. <laughs> No, because I was just imagining, you know, if, if you're addressing that, you know, that, that Hackney Empire, because it's on those tiers, you yeah. would feel, I mean, you would feel the power, Nish. I mean, use your power for good. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's when you're in those kind of Victorian theatres. The Victorians did a lot well, and much of it was absolutely horrific. But one of the things that they did well that has benefited all of us uh, is the construction of theatres because they, when you, they, they, it's a Frank Matcham theatre, so when they stack the audience like that, 
it just it, it just hits you like a wall of sound. It is it's it's pretty incredible. And I'm looking at your tour, and you know, lots of normal places like Bath, Buxton, Oxford, whatever. And then you go, New York? Hello? Because <laughs> 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 um, you, uh, I can't remember now, what was it? You hosted a show for America. I hosted a show for an app that did, the business model was YouTube, but you have to pay for it. And amazingly, that app lost a historic amount of money. It was called Quithy. And I have nothing but gratitude for its existence because uh, it gave me and my friends uh, a lot of work through the middle of the sort of the middle of the pandemic. Um, but um, but in terms of the New York audience, it's because I did it like I did the same thing last time. I finished my tour and then in around sort of May went out and just did two nights in New York, one night in L.A., um, but it's a lot of Americans, which I was surprised by. I sort of assumed it would just be a bunch of Brits living in those places. But there were lots of Americans there. And uh, the, the, it was, listen, they are prolific piraters of British comedy, uh, it turns out. Um, and um, one person had actually, the show Taskmasters is particularly pirated, I believe, in America. And um, one person had actually bought a Taskmaster book, which is not available in print in America, so they had to buy it and import it from the UK. And one of the, the one of the tasks in that book is to get as many Taskmaster signatures as possible. And the person was like, we genuinely did not believe we would get one of these. So I am thrilled that you're here. Wow. And do you write a whole new show for America or are they kind of, is your audience clever enough to know what's going on in the rest of the world? No, yeah, I think yeah, I think you have to assume that I'm performing to Americans with a, a more of a global sense than certainly uh, some of the population and indeed some of their recent presidents. Um, but it's it, it, you do sort of have to make some changes. Uh, there, there are certain British references that you can contextualise and that it's quite fun to contextualise for an American audience. But there are also certain, like it's sort of quite fun to talk about cricket with an American audience, for example. But there are certain references that you just have to go, OK, we just need to lose that. And, um, and there will be a process of, uh, of rewriting it for the American audience. Hey, listen, I'll let you get back to the glamour of Carlos. It awaits. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is buzzing outside your hotel room. Easter Sunday in Cardiff. Ooh, I'm so jealous. Uh, Nish Kumar's tour, Your Power, Your Control. It runs until the 9th of September. Uh, tickets and information available at nishkumar.co.uk. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with the rest of the gigs. Thank you for having me, Graham. My pleasure. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. <laughs> Ow. Yes, that was the Easter Bunny hopping by, uh, signalling the arrival of Waitrose Easter Egg Hunt. Oh, yeah. Uh, we are giving away some prizes. We're giving away, uh, well, hope to be giving away, a Waitrose British Leg of Lamb, a collection of Waitrose Easter Entertaining Wines. That's a Prosecco, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and an indulgent Duro Red. A collection of Waitrose Easter eggs. There's three of them. Uh, there's blonde chocolate, milk chocolate, salted caramel. Uh, oh, I mean, gorgeous. And then an Easter sweet treat package. Uh, there's an Easter egg drip cake, nine miniature decorated chocolate uh, eggs, and then a selection of hot cross buns. See what I mean? It's a lot. It is a lot. So the last time that Easter bunny went hopping by, uh, people had to text the word Easter. They did that. And I believe Jane is the lucky caller who's been selected. Hello, Jane. 
Hello. Hey, there you are. Uh, where are you, Jane? I'm in Puckeridge in Hertfordshire. Lovely. And what are you doing on this sunny Saturday? Well, we've just been making an Easter basket, ready to take up to all our relatives in Coventry tomorrow. We're all meeting up for a big Easter egg hunt and a bit of a party. Oh, I, I, it's the sort of thing you read about in books. You didn't know people know, actually did that. Make, but... We all make a bonnet and um, my famous <laughs> Auntie Sue puts on an amazing spread and we all t- go, go around the green in Coventry looking for eggs. Wow. And it, what, it, we what's really in... do that. <laughs> what's, in your, what's in your basket, Jane? <laughs> uh, lots of treats and bubbles. Um, this year I've made some... Uh, <laughs> Some cones full of cheesy balls that look like carrots. (laughs) The the work, the attention to detail, Jane. I hope people appreciate this. I hope they appreciate it. (laughs) And uh, and 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 have you have you finished your bonnet as well? No, that's in progress at the moment. We all have to make a bonnet, and uh, yeah, mine's not quite finished. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it'll be lovely when it is finished. Now. Here would be a delight if we were able to give you the lamb, the booze, the eggs, the chocolate treats, the hot cross buns. All of it's down to this. It's a very Amazing. simple question. It's a very simple question, Jane. Okay. If you if you don't get this, you'll be pulling your Easter bonnet down over your face. <laughs> <laughs> you, you won't want people you want people to know it's you. Okay. Which of the following are you all set? Are you all ready? Have you got oh, anyone there to no. help you? No. no. No, honestly. No, honestly. Unless unless you were raised by wolves, <laughs> um, you will know the answer to this question. Okay, okay, here we go. Which of the following... I like our tension bed. It's very tense, very exciting. Which of the following was a famous or is a famous cartoon rabbit? Which of the following is a famous cartoon rabbit? Was it A, Kevin, or is it B, Bugs? So, oh, I, I think even I know the answer to that. Do, it was so funny. Do you think? Let, let's see if you're right. Oh, yes, you are. It was the waiting. You begin to doubt yourself, don't you? Thinking, I'm sure, I'm sure it must be Bugs. It was never a Kevin Rabbit. Uh, congratulations, Jane. That's it. You've got you've got the full whack. You've got the lamb, the wine, the chocolate, the, everything. Uh, is there anyone else you'd like to say hello to on the radio, apart from your uh, auntie Susan? I would love to say hello to my husband, Michael, and my son, Harry, downstairs, and... Uh, Anthony and Emma and my, my whole McWackley family who I'm meeting up with tomorrow, my grandchildren, Rory, Hadley and Sophie. Love you all. Oh, beautifully said. You, you're on it today, Jane. You really are. The the, the basket, the bonnet, the shout-outs and all those Waitrose <laughs> goodies. Congratulations to you. Thank you so much for playing. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a cracking show, do you see? Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you can hear a new episode of the best of bits from the show from early Monday morning. Happy Easter, and I'll speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Uh, uh.